producers are making everyday decisions and they need science-based information so to make those decisions. We basically help in different ways. Uh, one is connecting these producers with the different uh, experts on different fields, different scientists. Another one is when they need certain information, you know, uh, scientific information, we, we can help them find what have been published, you know, in peer review journals, this kind of stuff, and, or who, who is the expert in that area as well, uh, you know, as well. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable ways. DSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. And AB Vista. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Uh, my name is Dr. Elizabeth Bobek. I'm an associate professor at Iowa State University. And today I will be interviewing Maro Ibaruro from the Egg Industry Center at Iowa State University as well. Um, Maro, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm an ag economist. I got my master's degree here at Iowa State University. And for a few years, I worked for the Iowa Beef Center. Uh, doing uh, research and cattle, cattle and swine production and marketing. And in 2009, I joined the, the Egg Industry Center, uh, where I do statistical analysis, marketing analysis, and we distribute some uh, monthly reports to the industry. Awesome. Um, I've definitely interacted with you before. I know um, there's probably thousands of people across the United States uh, that get your monthly reports, um, which I always look forward to. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into poultry? Yeah, I was working at the at the beef center at Iowa State University, at the Iowa Beef Center. Uh, and I saw this um, opportunity to start working for the newly created egg industry center. Um, I had a lot of curiosity about the egg industry because I didn't know anything about the production. So a very little. I, I work in a project about egg production in the beginning. Um, so I I jumped in. Um, I got hired for the shop, even though I didn't have previous poultry experience, but they wanted some egg economists for, for the shop. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, often we find that people are, are jump into the industry without any experience, but then they find out that it's kind of a cool place to work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Awesome. So, what what do you uh, what do you do with the egg industry center on a daily basis? Uh, you're a data analyst, but what does that entail? I need to compile data from different sources, mostly USDA, Urnabari. Um I also, you know, estimate the cost of production based on USDA data and producer surveys, and also the cost of processing and and 
you know, we also participate in our projects um, because our center, you know, um, we do research, you know, to help the uh, production and processing industry. Uh, we also finance research in other institutions. Um, but, you know, sometimes when, when a research project um, I can help with, I, I participate in that project. For example, a life cycle analysis that we are very close to finish now. Um, so I have been participating in that one. So um, on a daily basis, you said that you're collecting and compiling data. How how hard or easy is it to get the information that you need to present in your reports? Uh, depending on the information, the information that comes from USDA, you know, and Urner Barry is easy to, to get it because, you know, they, they, they publish that information. Uh, when I'm trying to collect information, you know, survey from producers, that's that's a lot harder to, to get, you know, information. Um, that's, that's always a challenge to get good information. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so what kind of reports are, are you able to send out for those that haven't seen your reports before? Um, and then how do you think people use the data? Uh, okay. So the, the reports, uh, there are two monthly, monthly reports. Uh, one is mostly about statistics that has you know, how many layers are uh, in the country, egg production, the exports, uh, the consumption, and also a projection of how many layers we think are going to be, you know, in the future months uh, in the country. And their report is most about, it's mostly about markets, you know, cost of production, uh, pricing information is there. And... I don't really know how they use the data. Um, there are many tables there, and not everyone, I think, can look at all the tables. They have one or two tables that they follow closely, uh, but I'm not sure how they use that data. <laughs> and the cost of processing, we send a yearly report, uh, you know, based on surveys. So um, all of your tables are, are geared toward the layer hen uh, industry, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we don't we don't uh, follow what's going on in the broiler or poultry. Uh, yeah. So how uh I guess I think the the tables that I've looked at have been really really helpful. Um how often do you do a big compilation of data? So I know they you can look at the monthly and sometimes the yearly, but some of the really interesting tables that I've used I guess to teach students in my own class um, are egg prices or egg consumption that were some of the more longitudinal so we could watch uh, increases or drops that were related to HPAI or other factors? Yeah, for the most part, we don't uh, send reports with yearly data. Um, I normally, when, when, you know, when I invited to, to do a presentation about, you know, trends and outlook, then it's when I, when I use the yearly data, that's, I think that's a good idea to send a yearly data once in you know once in a while you know to you know to show the longer trends yes yeah so what are some of the most interesting trends that you're uh, following right now since you get to look at the data on a monthly basis well uh, what I find really interesting is how much the the price changes uh, have been. Um, uh, Changing more rapidly since 2015 than now, um, and I think it's the, the result of 
so many things going on since 2015, you know. So mm-hmm. we have what they say is four historical events mm-hmm. in six, uh, seven years, you know. And so yeah. We have the high path of 2015, um, you know, that created historical high prices for the time. That was followed by a 10-year low prices, you know, in 2016. But then when uh, it was a, a time where the retailers competed very, very strongly for, you know, for egg products to use them as a loss leaders. And, and then the price, again, went really, really high at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. Um, and when they basically move on, the prices already went down again. And then we have, in 2020, we have the COVID situation. And the COVID situation was very interesting because with people moving, you know, to to work from home, you know, um, and a lot of restaurants closing, closing um, what happened is that the demand for shell egg really increased and pushed the prices really, really high. While the demand for the liquid egg that normally goes to all the demand that was going to restaurants and hotels uh, almost disappeared. And, and so the two prices moved in opposite direction, directions and really, really sharp uh, moves, you know. Um, so, and, and then in this year, we have high path avian influence again. So mm-hmm. these are, you know, four events that I think um, in any trend you have to mark what happened there because it's something of historical value and yeah. it happened in seven years yeah that that would be an exciting time to be a data analyst because you get to watch a lot of <laughs> crazy changes <laughs> yes and then we have the cage-free trend on top of that you know with so many you know restaurants and uh, supermarkets food manufacturers that are uh, that already pledged that they are going to sell only cage-free eggs by certain year mm-hmm. on top of state legislations so on top of what was going on with on that already mentioned we have all this conversion to cage free um that is also historical so out out of the regions that you track in the united states which regions are or are there any regions that fluctuate more than others or if there's going to be a change does it kind of happen uniformly uh well, most of the regions they 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 kind of move together in terms of prices. Um, the only one that that is different right now, really different, is California because they started with the cage free trend earlier. Uh, they started in 2015 with the with the proposition two. The proposition two didn't require cage free, but required 116 square inches per bird. So they had to convert into that that is you know more expensive um therefore the market in california start moving in a different uh, you know way than than they are market for you know it's a it's a different market now basically that's yeah that's interesting so do you think the rest of the market trends are going to catch up to what's happening in california as we get closer to those pledges or do you think because more of the u.s has to make that move to cage free that it'll just kind of lag because of the global changes. Uh, there are so many overlapping things there that it's really <laughs> hard to to tell, you know, because we have 
10 states that pass legislation that would require T3. Uh, two of them are already in place, California and Massachusetts. And there are eight are coming in, you know, between next year and 2026. But there are also some of these uh, customers that made pledges uh, to go K3. But, they, you know, there is some overlapping in the terms that uh, there are some customers that made, made their pledges to go K3. And they have stores in super in in states that have legislation and in states that don't have legislation. And similarly, mm. some of the customers that didn't make a a, a, a pledge to go K three, they have stores in in states with legislation. So at least for those stores, they have to go K three. Um, and it's it's very very hard to quantify how much overlap is there. And Therefore, I think we're, we're, we're going to see many changes, but I don't know what kind of changes <laughs> and which states are going to be more affected. Do you like to predict? <laughs> are you a predictor or are <laughs> no. you kind of an analyzer? <laughs> I analyze it. And, you know, I get very nervous trying to predict stuff because it changed so much. Yeah. So in the big outside events... So, so you said that the the liquid market um, and the shell egg market sometimes have this interplay where one goes up and one goes down. But in general, normal times, does one does one of those markets have more volatility than than the other one, or are they kind of equal volatility? So, is one market better to be in at a given time, basically? I think the the Shell egg market is a lot more volatile than the, than the liquid egg market. Um, I haven't run an analysis lately, you know, but uh, you have more more fluctuations on the shell egg market. Um, you have a lot more stable, stable prices on the dry egg market, for example. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, but the, the, the shell egg market is uh, the one that we have, we have more volatility. <laughs> Sorry about mumbling. I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's understandable. It's con- it's consumer purchasing habits that drive that market versus maybe contracts for hotels or restaurants. So, um, so when you're, what in uh, your job is the most interesting or the hardest part? Um, I think I would I would have a tendency to want to predict markets, but I know you can't because of the volatility, but. I guess what's the what's the hardest thing and also the most fun of part of your job when you have to get all the data for these reports? The hardest part is making projections for sure. You know, uh, even now the the you know the flock projections uh, with the recovery from high path are incredibly challenging. You know, uh, so it's it's interesting to to do a projection and let next come come and and see you know how. You know how accurate or inaccurate it was. Um, the most fun uh, for me is when I get good information from the surveys and I can analyze these costs. You know and and see how much variability is you know in, in the within the industry in their cost of production or processing. And uh, that's that's really really fun for me to to analyze the data that's coming from the surveys. 
Yeah. So for anyone listening who supplies Mara with data, keep <laughs> keep supplying that timely information, and maybe convince your uh, colleagues and friends that they should also supply Mara with some of this info. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very important, and it's very 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 hard to to collect. You know, I, um, you know, it's a, it's not a survey that you can fill from the top of your head. You have to dig into records. You know, and uh, it's it's time-consuming uh, for the producers, but it's, it's very, very important for us to get good information. So I sort of have a feeling that the way HiPath affected the markets this time has been much different, like you mentioned, than in 2015-16. Um, do you think overall that because the HiPath seems to be more spread out, at least to me, than than it did, at least in Iowa as well, we didn't have uh, the same volume of birds in one location. Do you think the markets are kind of weathering the storm a little bit better? I, I haven't seen as many price fluctuations as we did before. No, but we, you know, we had, we had similar uh, price fluctuations than in 2015. Yeah, affected less. Uh, we, you know, maybe less flocks in Iowa, and and the big difference between this high path and the previous one was uh, that most of the introduction this time is from the wild birds to to the domestic, uh, you know, uh, birds. So, which uh, is an indication that the biosecurity uh, is better in terms of that there is no people moving the virus from one farm to the other. Uh, but uh, it also shows the big challenge that we are having, you know, with the with disinfection. You know, where you know, it's, uh, even even doing good biosecurity practices, there people are getting infected. Um, and yeah, it's a lot a lot more spread uh, geographically than than previously. Um, I I'm not an epidemiologist to know why it's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed from the alerts that I get in my email every day that um, it's already popped up again this fall, and I don't think that has been as frequent in the past. So it, it's definitely a bigger problem in the wild bird population, and I'm interested to see what happens this fall and then if it kind of leaks over into the spring again um, or if it's a strain that just goes away over time, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And, but last time around, uh, basically at the, at the during the summer, it kind of completely stopped, you know. And this year, the cases continue to pop up during the summer and and now in the fall uh, again. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a different with respect to the last one, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so part of uh, the data that you compile, I know, is also uh, feed price and inputs. Um, what have those looked like over the last year or two? I I know they've got to have gone up. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Feed feed prices. You know, uh, corn and soybean meal prices. They they increase a lot uh, during the last year. I don't have the number in front of me, but. Uh, was a very very sharp increase on the on the on the prices of all. and the last USDA projection from Wall Street um, showed that they they expect the 
corn price to increase 13% more next year, and while the soybean meal price to, re, to be reduced 11% uh, next year. So the, that will result in, a, in about a 4% higher cost of feed, you know, providing that, that the conditions stay like this, you know, which is very hard to predict for them too. Uh, there are so many things that move this this market that the, their projections have to be moved as new things uh, happen in, in those markets, related to those markets. You know? Yeah. So so when you're doing your predictions and projections, um, how how is the USDA, I guess, contributing to those? Do they do monthly, quarterly, or weekly projections that, that you're compiling? Like, it's interesting that they've got to compile so you can compile. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, they they provide both things. Uh, they, they provide some of the statistics are monthly, some of them are weekly. Um, and the projections are monthly. What they, what they project is all, all, all monthly. You know, they project the egg production and prices for the New York uh, warehouse prices. And, and so these are monthly. But then prices are daily, and so I estimate the average of these daily prices. And the number of eggs broken for further processing are weekly, and the exports are monthly. So yeah. depending on the statistic, uh, is a daily or a weekly or a monthly statistic. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so what what are you seeing as far as trends that, uh, for import and export? What What's been happening with the the shell, the liquid, and then also feed. I mean, those are three different areas, but what's been happening? <laughs> yes. Um, the the imports didn't change much this year, uh, but they are always very, very low. They represent a very, very small percentage of the, of the total uh, market. Uh, what happened with the high path is that the, the export have been reduced um, a great deal. Since since that happened, and so so far we see a lot lower export than we were seeing before high part. But normally export they don't represent much of the production either. They you know between three and five percent for the most part. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, the, so most of the eggs that are produced here in the U.S. are con- consumed here. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, they are very important, uh, even though it's a small percentage. It's very important because the demand for eggs is very inelastic. So if you have excess supply and you don't have this egg for market, uh, that will uh, reduce the the prices a lot on on that specific month. So having a healthy export market where you know you can you can ship eggs um, is is very important for the industry. Yeah, yeah, that definitely would change or alter where those eggs could potentially go. So um, so let's say that there's a, an oversupply event and we don't have the ability to export, then where, where do the eggs go? <laughs> Many times you can break and dried eggs, you know, and so the dried egg uh, lasts uh, for over a year. So you can, you can break and dry. Uh, but also, you know, sometimes breakers, you know, they are at capacity and they, then they really, really affect the prices, you know. We really need to reduce prices in order to, 
to being able to sell these eggs. Yeah. Uh, many times way below the cost of production. Itself. Oh, yeah. It's bad. So do you know off the top of your head, um, it's probably a hard question, <laughs> what what right now are the margins um, between the cost of production and the uh, the sale price of, let's say, a, a dozen of shell eggs? I know it can fluctuate quite a bit. Um, it it flu- fluctuates so much that I, you know, normally I don't look at single month uh, margins. Yeah. So that, that brings up the, um, the struggle or the difficulties as far as when producers are making a switch to cage free, the margins don't give you a lot of additional revenue to help pay for the structural changes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the research project that estimated the cost, you know, uh, difference between conventional and cage free, the, the one I am aware of is the Coalition for Sustainable Egg Supply. Yeah. Uh, that is a, a few years old already. Uh, but they estimated that the cost was about 24 cents mm-hmm. higher, you know. So yeah. if in normal conditions a producer have a 10 cent, uh, you know, margin, uh, you cannot take that difference from the margin. Therefore, no. uh, you need a higher price for these cage free eggs. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's not that the producer can absorb that, that kind of, uh, you know, higher cost and investment. If, yeah. if they, they cannot pass this higher cost to, you know, they, their customers and finally to the consumer. Yeah. So what, what are you seeing right now as far as trends are going for, um, is the cost of cage-free right now covering or do we have an oversupply of cage-free eggs? We don't have much information about the prices of cage-free. It's mm-hmm. kind of scattered and we don't have much information about the cost. In fact, I'm doing a survey now um, trying to estimate what's the cost differences between the cage mm-hmm. and the conventional. Um, yeah. So because the Coalition for Sustainable Egg Supply was a very good project, but uh, I think it was finished in 2014. And yeah. producers from there, they have been learning how to manage these systems better. And therefore, some of the production efficiencies are getting better, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we need to get a better idea of now you know what's what the difference is but yeah, the cost so. of the cost of building have been a little higher too you know in the last yeah. few years uh yeah. building costs increased so do you do you think just based on maybe some of your initial research that the current cost of cage-free eggs is covering the actual true cost or do you think that producers are subsidizing that in other ways so like, do you think the cost of cage tree will continue to increase until we really figure out what it costs? Uh, so, so right now, if I'm selling cage-free eggs, are they uh, are they being sold at a price that covers my costs? I don't have don't know. much information, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, and there are some reports, you know, uh, that sometimes the customers they don't take all the cage-free eggs. Yes. <laughs> you know, and then some of these cage-free eggs end up being sold in the conventional markets, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is especially challenges for sizes of eggs that normally consumers don't prefer that much, that they're mediums, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. some of the data I saw, you know, from Nielsen's contract is 
there were like uh, 5% of the conventional eggs sold in the supermarket were mediums, you know, while the cage-free medium size were less than 1% of the, of the, oh, wow. the, the cage-free egg sales. Yeah. So that kind of point that it's hard to get a premium or sell this cage-free medium size eggs at a premium. Yeah. And that creates a challenge. What do you do with these eggs to recuperate that value, you know? So yeah. that cost. So what, what's the favorite egg in the store? What do, what do consumers buy the most? <laughs> well, uh, the majority of the consumers buy the conventionally produced eggs. Um, the contract, the Nielsen contract data from mid-July last year to mid-July this year show that uh, 76, uh, sorry, 74% of the, of the eggs sold in, in, in the supermarkets, uh, so, sorry, 76 were conventional, 24 were cage-free. Um, wow. Within cage-free, free-range, and, and, you know, and pasture-range. So the majority of the consumers, when they're presented with the choice of the lower-priced conventional egg at a higher-priced cage-free or free-range, so, <laughs> um, then, then they choose the lower-priced uh, conventional eggs. Gosh, is there uh, is there a favorite size? I always tend to go for the large, but I don't really have a reason. I just, <laughs> I just go for it. Yeah, the, the the vast majority of the eggs that are sold are large or extra large. Yes, I do appreciate the mediums because the shells are nice. <laughs> <laughs> I I just wonder that because recently I got kind of lazy about checking eggs because they they had been pretty good, and then you. Uh, get home and uh, barring any of your own damage on the way home, I've just noticed a lot, a lot more shell issues, but I mean, this could be a flock or other sort of thing, but that just made me think like how much money is lost because of crack eggs. It, it, it's probably quite significant in the whole scheme of things. <laughs> yeah. We, we try to get that answer from the producers uh, on our PCT survey. Um, but we didn't get so many answers to the survey, and the numbers were, you know, very different. So it was very hard to to make a conclusion about what percentage it is and and what how much value was lost because of that. And therefore, we never been able to publish anything because the data wasn't wasn't enough. You know, that's that's part of the problem when you don't get enough data. You you have just some, but it's, uh, you cannot make any conclusion from there. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a trade secret. They don't want to give up <laughs> their secrets. You know, some of them have good information. Some of them, they probably don't have good information, you know. Uh, so, so, but the, uh, whatever reason, we, we don't get very good, um, a good number of answers on that. So, to being able to publish but if we ever get a good number of answers, we, you know, that, that would be an interesting statistic to, to publish and to, for everyone to have. Yes. Yeah, because then uh, our friends over in the engineering or materials department maybe could make a better quality egg carton. <laughs> uh, it's a combination of things, you know. It's a carton plus, the, you know, you know well, the nutrition um, is uh, really, it's really important. Uh, genetics is very, very important. Uh, so genetic companies have been trying to improve the shell quality, you know, through their selection process. Um, so it's, 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 there are many aspects of it uh, that, 
you know, and the age of the hen, the size of the egg is also an important component of that, of that shell quality. And, you know, really depend on the carton. You know, sometimes I, I, I crack an egg and it's so hard to crack. And then I, you know, I crack an egg and it's, <laughs> it's like almost cracked by itself. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Did you ever do the experiment as a kid, the science experiment, where you had to make a little container for your egg and then drop it no. from a height and see if it survived? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I had seen them, you know, but uh, but I, I, I never I never had a chance to participate in that kind of uh, yeah. scientific uh, project. It should be fun. I, I I think I may have done it as a kid, but. Um, we have a balcony in our house and my husband very much wants to try the experiment, but I, I don't want to clean up the failed results. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you know, maybe if we got kind of a, a big group and put a tarp down, we could have a fun, a fun evening of testing out uh, egg flying <laughs> experiments. Uh, yeah, the, the engineers would probably win that because they would know what kind of materials to to make the the, yeah, well, the, the egg for airplane an, <laughs> for an engineer it's probably easy you know it's a, for someone like me like me it would be very challenging no i get it but but then you could analyze the statistics based on the mechanism of packaging and see <laughs> who came out on top <laughs> yeah. uh, i feel like for an analyst uh it's got to be interesting because I, I would really be into watching trends and want to analyze as much data as I could if I were you because you know how to do it quickly. And I think stats and economic analyses are so interesting because in the end, you, you have to make something economically viable, right? And the trends can help predict where to go. <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 fun. Uh, I really like to analyze data. You know. It's yeah. Fun. Do you uh, do you participate in in, in any uh, like fantasy football leagues, or do you do you use your analysis uh, expertise in other ways that don't relate to chickens and eggs? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Man, we. I think we could put we could put your expertise to better use. I think we <laughs> could uh, put together the optimal fantasy football team. <laughs> It'd be regular football for me, but probably soccer for you, right? <laughs> but still, you know, I, I never, never participate in, in these kind of things. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, now, now I know who to contact if I want to set up just uh, the the best uh, fantasy team. That I think we could make this work. <laughs> so, um, have you had overall good experiences working with producers? It sounds. It sounds like most of the time they're really willing to work with you because they're probably invested in the data that you put out. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, that's that's one of the things I really like about you know uh, the industry. Uh, I came to the industry without knowing knowing anything about or very little about you know because I worked in a project uh, with Homeway before, um, but. Uh, but the producer have been very instrumental and they like companies as well, you know, everyone in the industry. Very instrumental explaining me, you know, uh the production process, the challenges they, they're facing. Uh so it's uh you know, it's, it have been have been very, very good for me. You know? And I still have so much more to learn. 
Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's a, you know, um, sometimes that's, that's the sad part of, you know, after so many years, you still feel that there are so many things you don't know. Um, but they, they have been very, very helpful, you know, uh, you know, showing me, you know, how things are done and why they're done this way, you know. Yeah, your reports have to make sense to them. So they're probably invested in making sure that they can get the best information possible. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But, you know, I I, I like to learn about, you know, know, what's going on at the farms, you know, you know, uh, how they mix their feeds and, you know, how how they process their eggs, this kind of stuff that maybe I don't use it for economic reports, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's fun, you know, to learn about uh, an industry, whatever industry you, you're you into, it's, it's fun to, to learn these little details yeah. that make uh, everyday work. Yeah. Plus the, the chicken people are fun. <laughs> uh, you, ha- you have to, to like uh, variety and not having the same day if you work in the poultry industry. So. <laughs> Uh, so um so what is there something uh about in your either in your daily job or just in what you've learned maybe that could change the future of what you do so is there something that you've kind of discovered or that you've been understanding about the poultry industry that could make future reports better or trends that you've noticed that maybe you noticed before because you work with the data? I, I don't know how to put it, but we, we make changes on the on the reports as we learn that new information come out or better information. Uh, so sometimes as information disappear, you know, some some information that we were using in the report, they, you know, it was discontinued and therefore we, we have to make changes. But but look, always looking at what what information is out there that we didn't we didn't know about it, or new information that they are starting to report, and then we we incorporate it into the reports as as we go. You know, um, you know, adding one table here or there, and sometimes eliminating one table because the data is not there. You sound very flexible and responsive, which I think is awesome. <laughs> yes, we we tend to keep you know what we have, you know, but it, it is something something new. And we tend to add stuff, so the the reports are getting bigger. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I don't want to delete information that maybe someone is using it, you know, yeah. so I, I add the new information to the reports. Yeah. Well, I can tell you I like looking through them, and I always I learn about the feed input cost and... For teaching students, it's really helpful to show what the actual production costs are and then what people sell their product for. And tracking those changes over time is amazing because sometimes you're in a very weird part of history, which is what you described. And then other times you're in very status quo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, and you know, feed represents a very large proportion of the total cost. Yes. <laughs> you know, so yeah. formulation for, you know, Lower cost feed or better feed conversion, you know, uh, that's that's uh, those are key, you know, uh, for for the producers and as well as purchasing the ingredients, you know, uh, in a way that they can reduce their 
their feet, you know, if they can, if they can make something in their purchasing habits that reduce their feet, it has a huge impact on them. So. Yes. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the feed's got to be great, uh, but it also has to be a responsible and sustainable cost. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, adjusting the feed to the, to the production level that these hens have is very important because these, these hens are very productive, you know, they're, they're very, very productive. So if you have a problem with the feed, the most likely thing that you're going to see is a drop in production that might be very, very sharp, you know, uh, with, with some, seen some data where, where you see feed drop, egg production drop very, very, very quick. Um, and then they tell you, you know, this is, you know, we, we have this problem with it, you know, with the feed formulation, we didn't correct for this or that. And that's, that's very impressive to see. Wow. Yeah, that would be exciting to make a direct correlation causation relationship because those are not always true. But in that case, it sounds like <laughs> got your answer. <laughs> I I I've seen in some some experiments too, you know, where they but everything is controlled and they 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 have some problem with the with the feed formulation and then they, yeah. they see the drop right away. Yeah, yeah. since the hens produce eggs every every day, you know, you can you can see changes right away yes oh gosh yeah i would like to to tell you a little bit about the egg industry center and what we do if it's okay for you sure yes so the the egg industry center um is acts as a bridge between the egg production and, and processing and the and the scientific community you know the producers are making everyday decisions and they need uh, science-based information so to make those decisions. Um, we basically help in different ways. Uh, one is connecting these producers with the different uh, experts on different fields, you know, um, different scientists. Another one is when they need certain information, you know, uh, scientific information, we, we can help them find what have been published, you know, in peer review journals, this kind of stuff, and or who who is the expert in that area as well, uh, you know, as well. Um, and then we we also finance research, uh, not only our own research, but in in our universities across the country uh, to try to uh, basically create new information about the the problems that the producers uh, or the or the light companies need to solve. Um, but you know it's mostly producer uh, oriented, uh, so the producers uh, know what what they need to solve, and and then we try to find the research uh, that they need that year. Sometimes what happens is um, the more interesting, the most important thing for them is one topic, and next year is a completely different topic. You know, like now everyone is. So concerned about high path avian influenza, how to you know improve their biosecurity. Uh, well, the previous year was mostly about the cage free transition, you know, how to solve the challenges, you know, uh, you know, with the mortality, seed conversion, dust uh, in in cage free. And so many years, we get a lot a lot of proposals from, uh, from the scientists and. 
many of them are very good, but they are not exactly what what the producers is top of mind that year. Maybe next year that's that that is a move to the top because something is going on. So, um, but basically this is this is the way we work, and we also have a forum, you know, that is uh, every year uh, where we uh, basically uh, have presentations to the industry um, about different topics um, that are selected by our board of directors that are in a combination of industry and and academic. Yeah. and producers associations this kind of stuff so, so. yeah it's uh it sounds like uh the it's a much needed bridge to help connect the two uh producers along with information and then help get them real-time answers which is really important yes and it's got uh, hard to keep track of all the information that is out there you know <laughs> for everyone you know yeah. even if it's your own field there are so many new publications so much research going on in different parts of the world and um, here in the U.S. as well. You know, a lot of information is generated here, but there are some other information that is generated in other places that can be extrapolated to the situation. Um, so it's, it's hard to keep up. Yeah, I I agree. The, the amount of information that comes out on a daily basis is really hard to keep up with. So the answer could be out there, but sometimes you just don't know. <laughs> yes. Because it's so new. <laughs> yeah, and many times happened to me looking for information for someone that asked, you know, uh, coming coming across information that I didn't, or didn't know it existed already. Yes. So. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, it, that's an exciting part of your job, though, too, to be able to look and compile new information to help somebody out. I mean, that that's, that's key. <laughs> it's time for Famous Three. So I will I will ask you the three questions that we ask everybody on the show. Um, and the first one is, what is your favorite poultry-related book or resource? Yeah, uh, my favorite book is the the one that was published by Don Bell. Uh, this is a commercial chicken uh, neck production book. <laughs> yes, uh, that, that book, uh, you know, it's, it's very long. Uh, yeah. But have chapters on every single angle of the of the egg production industry oh. and processing, and so yeah. it's, it's my first to go book. Yeah, uh, when I you know when when I want to know about something specific, I go and look at that book first, you know, and, yeah. and then look at the other resources. That's really, yeah. gosh, that that's good. It's um, not very common to have physical books anymore. So I, lo- I love physical books. I like leafing through papers. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a huge book. Very you know, but, uh, but, you know, you go to the chapter you want to, to learn about, you know. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's very nice to have it. Yeah, gosh. I should uh, have a stack of those on hand for my students. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can learn something from a book like that. Um, what is your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Yeah, um, I don't read that much, uh, <laughs> you know, outside of, uh, of the shop, you know, because my shop requires a lot of reading. So I, I you know, I don't, I don't read that much. But there is one book I really like. Um, it's called Miracle in the Andes. And that's uh, about a tragedy that happened in the early 70s. Um, that um, 
And, you know, I'm originally from Uruguay, and the, the, this, um, this uh, rugby team was flying to Chile to compete there, you know, uh, kind of friendly games, I think. Um, and the, car, the, the plane crashed. And, and it cl- crashed there on the, on, on very, very high on the, on the Andes. And, and they have to survive more than 70 days wow. on the snow wow. without any outside resource. Um, so, and it was, you know, it was a very traumatic experience as you can, as you can imagine, you know. Uh, but this book was, uh, combined the history of what happened with how they were feeling at the time, you know, how they felt when they learned that the mm-hmm. search stopped, for example, because yeah. they, they, they had a radio that was, they were able to listen, you know, what was going on. And it was a time when they learned that nobody was looking for them anymore, you know, so the, the search for them stopped and they, okay, this, this is the time when they have to plan how to get out on their own, you know, and this is, wow. where, you know, uh, and so what they like is because it's not only say they call the story, but how, you know, what things went through their minds at the, at wow. the time. You know? and it's, <laughs> so it's a, it's a, and, you know, at the, at the end, uh, I think with 16 of them survived, wow. uh, you know, um, you know, but there was, it, it, it wasn't very, very, very incredible story. Uh, yeah. yeah, I should put that on my reading list. It sounds really good. <laughs> um, so uh, the the last question: In your opinion, what sets successful poultry professionals apart from those who are not? Uh, I think um, it's a combination of qualities. Uh, the egg industry is very competitive. And so I think having a very good knowledge, you know, on how to run the operations, how to do the marketing, uh, having the right people on the right places, uh, you know, uh, you know, hiring and retaining good employees, uh, having the experts on the different uh, places you need to solve issues, you know, uh, uh, like uh, health and nutrition. You know, productions in general, you know, processing in general. So the the, the sum of all these small details, um, I think, is uh, is is the key, you know, for for this uh, for this company to you know to thrive. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk. This was really fun. I I always love talking to economists because. Somebody's got to do the tough job of working with all the numbers, and it's you. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. Thank you for, for the opportunity to talk uh, at the podcast. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I do it. It's just my first time, so I don't, <laughs> don't know how to talk in a podcast. You are awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>